Four weeks ago, we left and saw Jesus hung on a cross in what was called the crucifixion. As we said then, this was the most cruel death that Rome could come up with for the punishment of criminals in a very public way. It was not a punishment that was brought to a heavy level, a high amount of pain, and then the punishment concluded. Rather, it was brought to a conclusion of death. And then bodies were often dumped in nearby ravines or under trees or for animals to clean the bones. Once in a while, a family or a friend would be open enough to claim the body and it would be buried in a, perhaps in a family plot. People then knew that when the body was taken from the cross, that person who had been there was dead. Critics have sought to disprove the death of Christ as well as his resurrection. It takes great faith to believe that Jesus fainted, was buried in a cold, damp tomb, that he revived after two days and got out of the grave clothes and folded the cloth wrapped around his head and then moved the stone himself from the inside and stole away while the Roman guards were watching. I don't have enough faith to believe that. But I do have enough faith to believe that the Son of God, very God himself, came back to life came through the stiffened grave clothes, folded that head cloth to make a point, and opened the tomb so that the women and disciples could see that it was empty. Jesus was left on the cross in our thinking four weeks ago. But after all that we had heard, after these things, that's what... John says in chapter 19 and verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. Joseph comes after all of these things. After Jesus was dead. After the soldier had pierced his side with the spear. After John had said, I'm here to witness to you that Jesus was dead. Every person there was weeping and crying because this, their leader, was gone. After the trials, after the flogging, after the walk up Golgotha's hill... After being nailed to the cross, suffering there and dying, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus for burial. Now, the question is, as you come to this, and some of us who have been in church a long time maybe relate and remember what uh, we know about him, but who exactly was Joseph of Arimathea? There's a few different things that are mentioned, most of them just around the the time of the resurrection. But in Matthew chapter 27, we get a little bit of it. 
When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph was a believer. He was a rich man. He was a disciple. We find in other passages, uh, specifically Mark chapter 15, that he was a member of the council of the Sanhedrin. They were people who were looking forward to the kingdom. We read that as well in Mark chapter 15. Joseph was a follower of Jesus and he went to Pilate and he asked for that body. Now, we read a little bit more here in our passage in John chapter 19 because verse 39 says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds in weight. So they, Joseph and Nicodemus, took the body of Jesus. Nicodemus, the man who came to Jesus at night. Nicodemus was the one who, in John chapter 3, came and asked him those questions that brought up all kinds of answers, like he must be born again. And that very, very familiar verse in John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Nicodemus was the one who, when soldiers who had gone out and did not feel like they could take Jesus as they they had been told to do, and they said in answer to why they did not do that, they said, no man ever spoke like this man. It's Nicodemus who spoke to the council when they were upset, angered, wanted the life of Jesus and even these soldiers, Nicodemus, who said, uh, shouldn't we first give a person a hearing before we judge them? And they came back and attacked him verbally. Are you from Galilee? Does anything, will the Messiah come out of Galilee? This man, Nicodemus, also came and requested the body of our Savior. I don't know how those two got together on this. It's a lot of questions that are unanswered. But Joseph and Nicodemus were there together to take the body of Jesus. I don't know if they went to Pilate together. I don't know if Joseph went and and Nicodemus was waiting for them. I don't know. At first, the men wondered. They questioned. Early on in John's Gospel, we read about that. They came to Jesus, Nicodemus did, by night. Keep in mind that they were members of that council, the Sanhedrin, that Jewish leadership group who were knowledgeable in Old Testament scriptures. They studied the scriptures to see if it, anything that came before them, whatever it might be, was true. If a new teaching came up, they were the ones who looked at it. If a new idea was brought forward, they were the ones who studied it out. In the Old Testament scripture, then they decided on these thorny issues and sought to know if scripture supported one side or another. Some people I have read have kind of compared them to Congress. Um, probably not Congress like it is today, but what Congress was designed to do. To study out things and come up with one side or another. Is this right? Is this wrong? They studied what Jesus said. They studied what he claimed. I wonder where these two were when Jesus was tried. 
Perhaps they were there and a little bit afraid to speak up. Perhaps they were there and still trying to come to the conclusion of what they truly believed. But here, in the end, they came out to bury the Son of God. In the wealthy Joseph's own tomb, hewn out for himself, interestingly, in a spot near Golgotha. Why would a wealthy man choose a place close to a a spot of crucifixion for his final resting place? Well, we don't know. But in reading and in studying over the last few weeks, it's been interesting to see some of the different thoughts that people have put into this. Warren Wiersbe surmises that perhaps these two had come to understand from the Old Testament passages that Jesus would have to be die. He had told Nicodemus that he would be lifted up. Perhaps they knew what was going to take place. Perhaps the Holy Spirit, as he worked in their hearts, also worked in their minds with the idea that they should be ready. That they should be the ones who would take the body. When Jesus, in his final words, said, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Perhaps they were ready to request from Pilate. I've never really thought about any of this. I I guess I just thought of it as, oh, he decided to go and, and do that. But think about the time frame that's here. It was about the ninth hour, Scripture tells us. That's about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. They only had just about three hours or so before sun began to set before Passover began. The body had to be prepared and the body had to be in the tomb within those three hours. They had to be ready for the request. And verse 39, in reference to Nicodemus, says that he came, he who had come by night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 70 pounds in weight. I don't know about you, I I don't know for sure about Nicodemus, but I know that I I don't have 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe sitting around my house. Chris, do you? I I if anybody would, I thought Chris might, but I <laughs> I, I I don't understand. I I think they were ready. I think God had prepared their hearts. God had prepared their minds. And they were just waiting for that last speech, that last idea, that last thought that Jesus put forth. God's Spirit can work in hearts of these men. He did in reference to their belief. He could also work in their hearts to prepare them for this time. Just a thought, just an idea. Maybe they waited. Maybe... They waited even in that nearby tomb, ready to prepare the body for burial. They had to hurry, as I said. The first, they first, as they received the body, probably from the guards as they took it down, they first had to massage Jesus' arms. I never thought about that before. They had to rub those arms because as that body hung on the cross... And as rigor began to set in to that body, and as the body had fought for relief from pain, 
No doubt those arms got stiff. And as the body came down, they first had to massage Jesus' arms due to what had set in, in the cooling day, in the exertion on the cross, and in that body's struggle for relief and for life. Then they washed the body. They had to prepare it in the proper way, and that's very well prescribed in Jewish law and idea. And they had to wash that body. And then they anointed it with oil before wrapping it in a single sheet of linen cloth. We know that because Matthew tells us about that sheet of linen cloth. This was followed by the mixture of spices and the strips of cloth that John mentions, which were wrapped around the body. Seventy-five pounds of spices. I, I don't know if they got all of those on there or not. The work may not have been finished because the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us accounts of several women who came out on Sunday morning to complete the burial process. Look with me down in John 19 and verse 42, the last verse of that passage. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Because the tomb was near, they laid Jesus' body there. Sometimes we look at things like this as a coincidence. Oh, there was, there was a tomb right there. Joseph of Arimathea, he had a tomb. And it was like, oh, let's, let's put it there. I look at this as God's plan. God overseeing all of these things. For just the right tomb. Hewn out of rock. This wasn't just soft soil that was pushed together that could easily be gotten into. This was a rock, a cave. It was a difficult place. In fact, Matthew records that Joseph of Arimathea rolled a great stone over the entrance to the tomb. I've heard all kinds of descriptions. When I was growing up, I remember seeing a boulder that would have been rolled over the opening. That's the way the thought was then. And then later, evidently, through archaeological digs and finds, they found tombs that were like this. And they had a little bit of a hole dug out, kind of a rounded spot, and they would roll in a round, almost like a tire-shaped rock that would go into that and set in there. And it was hard to move. The purpose of that was not to keep the body in. The purpose of that was to keep grave robbers and animals from getting in. Matthew also tells us that beside the body being there, beside the stone that was rolled over there, that the seal of Rome was placed on the tomb. That was pretty impressive as far as people at that day and age were concerned. And besides that, At the request of many of the Jews, the Jewish leaders, there was a a guard of Roman soldiers placed there as well. Everything was in the right spot, in the right place. And the tomb was sealed and closed. Listen to me now. With a dead body inside. There is nothing wrong 
with acknowledging the fact that Jesus died on the cross. He had to do that so that our sins could be paid for. And he was in that tomb. And he was in there probably until sometime Sunday morning. Friday at sundown, the body of Jesus was sealed in this rock tomb. By death, by grave clothes, and by the Roman government and guards. It was sealed in that place. To visit that tomb at that time, well, that would kind of be the end of the story. Most books written like this would not have a chapter 20. Or a chapter 21, for that matter. Most stories written like this would be completed. All was finished. None of us have ever heard of a friend or a family member, a loved one who rose from the grave. But this was not just any human being. I want us to visit that tomb two days later. I want us to visit that tomb on Sunday morning. We can come along with a group that is coming to the tomb. The synoptics tell us that several women came. John mentions just Mary Magdalene. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Several women went to anoint that body. Mary Magdalene was one of them. As best we can tell, they were women that came perhaps from different places, but all coming about the same time and probably arriving about the same time. John mentions Mary. No reason is given for that, but probably because she's the one who goes to tell Peter and John. It's interesting when you see all of this, how each part plays out. She saw that the stone was taken away from the tomb, and so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Listen to that verse again, verse number two, would you? They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. I don't know who they was referring to. No reference there. Could be the Romans, but why? Why would the Romans want to take the body of this one who had been called King of the Jews, that Pilate was so frustrated with, that all of the others were so worried about, why would they want to take it out, take his body out and cause people to think that he had been raised from the dead? That doesn't make sense. Maybe she was thinking about the Jewish leadership. (laughs) But again, why? Why would the Jewish leadership want this one who was called the Messiah to be taken out of the grave just to prove who he was? That didn't make sense either. 
Maybe she's thinking of grave robbers. Maybe she's thinking of animals. Maybe she's just using a generic they, but nobody really quite understood. I love the passage as it continues on. Verse 3 says, So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. John's writing kind of puts the horse before the cart, I guess. No, the cart before the horse. Whichever way. They were going to the tomb, and then he tells how they were going. I wondered about that. They were going to the tomb. I was reading slowly. I'm a slow reader. And I was reading that verse, and it says they were going, and I thought... How were they going? Were they walking? Were they just kind of, you know, moving along slowly and talking? And then I read the next verse. Both of them were running together. Now, I know as a kid I saw all the pictures and I knew they ran, but I was reading the text here. And so they were going, they ran, they ran together. But the other disciple, John, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Verse 5 says... Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now, there could be a couple of reasons why John did not go into the tomb. One might have been because he was scared. A lot of people don't like to go through graveyards. Can I get an amen? Some, especially at night or when it's dark, you know. Could have been he was just a little timid. Could have been the fact that it was, it was uh, the time of Passover and he didn't want to be unclean. I, could have been a lot of different reasons. But it says he stooped down and he looked in. Now I am told that there are six different verbs used in Greek to translate to see. I don't know. I, I'm American. I speak English. To see. Then you put 14 different sentences on there to explain what that means. The Greeks have six different words to help us to understand exactly what it means. Three of them are used in this passage. In verse 5, John Blepi saw facts as he was looking in. The grave clothes were there. The word means that he saw the clothes without understanding. He just saw the facts. The grave clothes. They were there. I'm sure in his mind, perhaps, that he, when he looked in and saw that, he thought, oh, they were mistaken. They just missed seeing the body. Remember, as of yet, they did not understand that he must rise again. So he just glanced in. He saw it. He saw the cloths, but he didn't understand what that meant. Verse 6 and 7 carry it a little bit further as Simon Peter catches up. Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. When Peter arrived, he rushed in. No surprise there. Peter was one of those guys that didn't hesitate. He just went in. He was just probably swinging his arms and trying to see what was going on. And John, get out of the way. And in he went. 
The word that's used there for his seeing is the word, uh, and I could be pronouncing this wrong, but theorei, which means that he looked attentively. Now think of what it says here in our English Bible. He saw, he saw the grave cloths. He saw them laying there. In other words, he saw them there as the body was. Perhaps, and probably, they were still in that cocoon type of shape. Remember, after three days, cold, with the, the, all of the, the um, uh, myrrh and aloe around that, they probably had gotten stiff, and they, and they remained there. But there was something else that he saw. He saw the, the face cloth. Some places call it the head cloth. It was a piece of cloth that they wrapped from the top around to hold the jaw closed until rigor set in. So that the mouth would not pop open. Now, if somebody had stolen the body, would not be surprising if the face cloth was off to the side. But it wasn't just thrown off to the side. It had been folded neatly and placed over there. Now, I'm not too bright, but I don't know of any animal that's going to do that. I've seen some dogs take some blankets or some things that they're laying on, and I've seen them push them away, but they're piling up, you know, they're not folding them. No, no grave robber's going to do that. Wait a minute, wait a minute, just before we leave... I want to take the face cloth and I want to fold it neatly and put it over here. He would have been by himself if he was robbing that grave and he had that type of fetish. Because those guys would have wanted to be out of that place quickly. Jesus, as he came out of those grave cloths, I believe, folded that and set it to the side. Why? Because he could. He was the Son of God. He was coming, had come back to life. He had already come out of the grave cloth. He was getting ready to leave the tomb. And he folded that face cloth. It says there that Peter arrived and he he looked attentively. He was seeing all of the details. He wanted all of the facts. Just the facts. The word here means that that's what Peter was doing. He was gathering facts. Cloths from the body, but hmm. Face cloth folded and at the side. But it, it... It makes sense to Peter. John described this, that the grave cloths were like a hollow cocoon where the body had been. And now, when we come to verse 8, we see even the third instance of what was seen. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw, and he believed. John saw with understanding. He perceived. Wow. Folks, this is a wow moment. 
all of a sudden it grabs John. Jesus is risen. He's alive. If he was, if this was Easter, I'd be saying he is risen and I'd be encouraging you to say he is risen indeed. But we're in October, remember? It's fall now. We kind of missed that, didn't we, on our plan for the getting to this spot, didn't we, Chris? Jesus is alive. I don't think John understood everything, but he grasped enough to say that he believed in this passage. He believed. Jesus had been raised from the dead. Jesus, let me say it a different way, rose from the dead. Not somebody else who did it for him. Not somebody else who did it to him. Jesus himself, God's son, rose from the dead. Well, I want us to go to our last thoughts this morning. We're going to leave this passage, this story, if you will, right in the middle. But I want us to see here the truth that is told. You see, I don't know about the belief of John. I don't know if it happened while they were there in the tomb or if it took some time while they were headed back. Maybe John and Peter were talking about what had happened and maybe they started talking about some of the things that they had already experienced with Jesus throughout their time with him. Perhaps... Perhaps John went back in his mind to that place in what we call John chapter 2 when this was recorded. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you, Jesus, show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. In three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it was taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Maybe they started talking about this on the way back. I I, I don't know. They were still formulating it all because it says that they as yet had not believed it. If it was now, we would say that it, they had to let it sink in. They had to ruminate. That means they had to chew on it. They had to get the facts together and then just go over it and over it and over it in their minds. What are the implications? What will it mean to them? Where is Jesus? All of these things that were there. And they were still trying to put all of that together. But they thought about, I think, the truth of Jesus' words. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Perhaps they were thinking about the truth of the Old Testament prophets. There was a a lot of these men at this time who were thinking of the suffering Messiah, Isaiah 53. And that's the way they wrote about him and talked about him. John remembered what he had told them after he had cleansed the temple, but he, I, I think John and probably Peter and others began to think back to the Old Testament prophecies as well. Just a few of them. 
that I've marked off today. Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let the Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You will not let the Holy One see corruption. Prophecy about Messiah. And today he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Psalm 71, verse 20. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. Or, sometimes we don't think through all of these and it takes a little work on some of them to, to catch them. How about Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2? After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Talking about Israel, but what a picture it is for us as well of our Savior. The Savior has been raised. Even as he dismissed his own spirit, even so, he came back from the dead. He came out of the grave cloth. He folded that napkin up to the side. King James word, napkin. He rolled the stone away. He caused that earthquake. He caused those soldiers to fall down as dead men. And he went out. To pull the disciples back together. To prepare them for the work that was yet to come. The truth of Jesus' words. The truth of the Old Testament prophets. And lastly, the truth of the empty grave. As Peter and John discuss this information, we've got to leave them there. We've got to kind of just let that sit there for a while. Come back next week. We'll get some more. But I want to talk to you this morning here as we close. Or us. What do we do with this? And I want to share with you that the first thing we need to do with this is we need to trust the words of Jesus. He said he was going to rise again. He said, you kill this temple, you destroy this temple, and I'm going to rise again. Now I'll, I'll raise it up again. And he did it. Just exactly as he said he would. We have to trust the promises and the words of the prophets. we got to trust today the words of God. Listen, we have his recorded word in this book. And this is truth for us. It's truth about the resurrection. It's truth that Jesus is alive today. It's truth that he's seated at the right hand of the Father on high. 
It's truth that he said he was going to send the Spirit. And the Spirit indwells each and every one of us who have placed our faith and trust in him. That's truth. You say, why is it truth? Because God said it and put it in this book. This is truth. I was listening to a message on uh, an iPod this week, uh, a podcast this week, and I was listening to a preacher that was talking about it, and he was giving statistics about how many believers are saying things that they believe or that they hold to. And they're contrary to Scripture. People who say that they are Bible-believing Christians. And they're saying, yeah, I believe that, but it's contrary to this book. Listen, everything starts right here. This is the book. We've got to hold on to that. Many Christians today hold on to their wisdom, their judgments, their decisions over God's word. But that's only going to get us into trouble. You know how I know that? Because I've read the Old Testament. Have you read that? Have you read about that group of people that God chose to be his people? Have you read about how they didn't believe him? Even after he had done so much for them? And then the writer of Hebrews goes back and makes reference to that. Hebrews chapter 3. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's, it's there. You can read it later. Today, if you hear his voice, the writer of Hebrews said, as the Holy Spirit says, I love that. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me, God, to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Sometimes I wonder as I read about God's children in the Old Testament, as I read about some in the New Testament, and I think about us today, I wonder what the Holy Spirit would write about us today. I know this. He would say to us, each one of us, do not harden your heart today, as in the day of temptation. As in the day of trouble. You ever had trouble in your life? You ever had difficulties that come? How did you react? Did you fall on your face and say, God, why? Or did you fall on your face and say, God... I don't understand it, but I trust you. Beloved, we've got to hold on to our God because he's holding on to us. 
We've got to trust in His Word. We've got to read it, understand it, commit ourselves to it, and let it guide us through everything that we face each and every day. God's speaking to all of us today. If God is dealing with you about something in your heart and life, in a few moments we're going to sing after I pray and we invite you. If God is dealing with you and you need to pray with somebody, you just need to come and pray here by yourself, just come. Come right here. This is the place to do that. Don't say, well, I'm a little embarrassed by that. You know what? God wasn't embarrassed about you. He did all kinds of things for you right out in public. Why? Because He loves you. And if God's working in your heart, I invite you to come. Kneel right here. Sit right here. Talk to your God. Someone will come and see if they can pray with you. But let's do business today with God. Because we can trust Him. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for the promises that You give us. Your presence, the resurrection, heaven. Lord, You've given us the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us. Oh, Lord, we rejoice in that today. Lord, we rejoice in the fact that you've given us this book and you've preserved it over the centuries so that we could have it and understand it and live in the reality of it. Father, I pray that you'd work in our hearts today that we might live out the truth of it and, Lord, that we would not harden our hearts but, Lord, that we would trust you in these days. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.